Tonight, we're going to address the first of five cults. I'll just briefly list these off if you missed them in the email. We're going to address Mormonism tonight. Next week, we're going to address Jehovah's Witnesses. Then we'll look at what's called Christian science. You may have seen those little Christian science reading rooms. That's a, a religion, really, in and of itself. Then we'll look at Scientology, which you're probably familiar with because Hollywood seems obsessed with it. And then we'll conclude with the one that is some people have trouble defining as a cult, which is why I included the phrase cults and sects. Some would call this S-E-C-T-S, a sect of Christianity, Seventh-day Adventism. And I'm going to help you understand some of the very difficult uh, wrong doctrines that that sect of Christianity uh, teaches, which is why many would categorize it as a cult, but admittedly, it is debatable. But before we do, and before I pray, it might be helpful if we just clear up one word in particular. Some of you may be wondering what on earth a cult even is. Perhaps when you hear the word cult, the first thing that comes to your mind is like witchcraft or a Ouija board or you know some sort of practice that seems like pagan or demonic worship. And just as a clarification, when you think of that, what you're actually thinking of is the occult, O-C-C-U-L-T. It's from the Latin occulter, which means basically a, this hidden thing that ends up being uh, secretive of sorts. What I'm referring to tonight is from the Latin word cultus, worship, and that's what we call a cult. A cult is not exactly like the occult. A cult, just C-U-L-T, what we're going to address for the next five weeks, those are those uh, defined groups that are related in this case, to Christianity, but they deviate on major core doctrines. How many of you were here at Hickory Grove Sunday? So if you were here at Hickory Grove Sunday, you know in the sermon Sunday we addressed how do you take the Bible and decide what do you got to agree on, and if you don't agree on this, you're not a Christian. That's those first order doctrines. And what are those things that we can agree to disagree on? Well, we would say a cult is somebody that claims to be Christian in one way, shape, or form, but fundamentally disagrees with a key core doctrine of the faith, which basically proves, though they say it, they're truly not it. And so tonight, we're going to look at the first of five groups that are pretty closely tied to Christianity, but in the final analysis, are not Christian in any way, shape, or form. And our first subject tonight will be perhaps the most famous of them all, Mormonism. So why don't you join me as we pray, and let's ask God to help us, and then we'll commence our study tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would guide me, guard me, let me say words that are charitable and edifying. I want to rightly present the views of this sect, this cult, so that we, your people, will be best equipped to love them and show them the truth that is found in you. And so would you use me in spite of me to build up the faith of my brothers and sisters this hour, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear Mormon? Probably, at least initially, have certain people that kind of filter into your mind. I, I would guess probably the first person that comes to most people's minds is Mitt Romney. He famously ran for the presidency a couple times, probably the most famous Mormon of the last 100 years or so. Maybe you're familiar with the most famous Mormon of all time. Of course, would have never met him, but famed Joseph Smith, 
the founder of Mormonism. Some of you may have watched Glenn Beck for years on television, a famed Mormon. Some of you probably didn't even know that Donnie and Marie Osmond, they were Mormons. What comes to your mind when you think of it? Maybe you think not of a person in particular, but maybe you think of certain places. So your mind just visually goes to that Mormon tabernacle. Maybe you've seen it in different cities. There's a handful of them around the country. Or maybe you go to Salt Lake City in particular. You know that Utah is filled with Mormons, and in particular, Salt Lake City seems to be almost like a Mormon town. You think of those big, beautiful-looking temples. Or maybe you've watched on YouTube or on television the famed, unbelievably talented Mormon tabernacle choir. I listen to them all the time. It's a tremendously gifted choir and orchestra. You you think of places like that, or maybe you think of some practices. You know, when I was walking in here, somebody said, isn't Mormonism, aren't they the, actually it was a young man. It was a teenager that said, isn't that the group that like marries a bunch of people? They got like multiple wives. You know, have you ever heard of sister wives on TV? Maybe you think of those sort of practices, or maybe you had a Mormon neighbor. Growing up, I had a buddy who lived right behind me, who was a practicing Mormon. And it never made sense to me that he could never have soda, which soda was a very special thing, pop, Coke. wasn't ever really, we didn't get to drink it much, but when we did, you know, it was a big moment, and he could never have any, and I never understood why. He, would only, he was only allowed to drink one type of soda, and it was root beer, which incidentally is my favorite, but I kept thinking, why is that the only one you're allowed to drink? And it's because Mormons cannot, by conviction, consume caffeinated beverages. They also abstain from almost anything addictive. They don't drink alcohol of any kind. Caffeinated beverages eliminates soda, coffee, even tea. Uh, They'll stay away from narcotic uh, medication typically. And I was so confused. Maybe that's where your mind goes. And and if that's you, what I want to do tonight is help be faithful. So I want to try to be charitable. There's going to be some things I say that you may cynically think, man, Pastor, you're not being that charitable because that is wacko. But unfortunately, some of the things I am going to address tonight are are pretty out there. It's amazing. I I bet few of you are that familiar with with some of the contours of Mormonism. In particular, I want to tell you the story of Mormonism tonight, because honestly, it's fascinating. It's wild to think where it came from and how it developed in to what it is today. I want to, in other words, help get rid of some of the caricature and provide as faithfully as I know how some of the major tenets. I want to answer a few major significant questions about Mormonism because this is not some small little group. There are some 17 million self-attesting, practicing Mormons today. If you go to the state of Utah, it's estimated that upwards of 58 plus percent of that state identifies as Mormon. It's an unusually potent uh, sect of Christianity out in the American West There are Mormon uh, temples all across the United States. I'm from Kansas City many years ago, and in Kansas City, one of the most famous of all the Mormon temples is located there, and you're going to understand in just a moment why Kansas City is so critical to the Mormon faith. Tonight, I want to address a few questions that are probably in the back of your mind. The first one is, where on earth did they come from? Like, where... How old is Mormonism? Is it as old as Judaism or Islam? Which, by the way, this was all... The only reason I'm doing this seminar is because when I taught that major world religions, how many of you were here when I did the major world religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism? 
I had many of you after I taught that seminar ask, hey, could you teach us on Mormonism or some of these other groups? And I thought, yeah, it'd be great for us to think through some of these Christian sects so that we could helpfully think through how does the gospel differ from these so-called Christian groups. That was the impetus behind tonight. And so let's ask, where did they come from? What's the history behind Mormonism? Then we need to look at their authority, their sources. What do they read? That's a good question is where do they get their stuff? We have a Bible. What do they got? We're going to look at their sources of authority, their, their Bible, so to speak. And then we'll look at the question of, okay, having thought about what they uh, read, what on earth do they teach? So they read that. Now, what do they teach? What's their doctrine? What's their main beliefs? We'll address the theology of Mormonism. And then we'll conclude our study with a fourth and final point that I'm barely going to need to even address because by the time I get to this point, you're probably going to know the answer to this. But that's going to be, why do we call Mormonism a cult? We'll answer that fourth and final question. How is it different from Christianity? What's so different? You're going to have that answer before we get there, and we'll just put a finer point on it at the conclusion of our study tonight. So let's begin at the beginning of Mormonism. Where on earth did it come from? I want to trace the story briefly with you using an analogy. Let's take the analogy of just like a plant. Plants tend to grow. So that tree you have in your backyard, it didn't just begin as a tree. That beautiful giant edifice that you marvel at, it actually began as a little seed. And that seed had a particular soil in which it was germinated, that enabled it to grow. And so let's go all the way back to the very beginning and discuss what was the soil, so to speak, that allowed a sect like Mormonism to sprout, to take root and to grow. Did you know that Mormonism is a made-in-America religion? Its sum total of its history is here in the United States. If you remember from your, our study of church history, back in the 1800s, around the year 1820, America was burgeoning as a nation. We were just a couple of, what is it, 20 years or so from the founding of our country. George Washington had recently passed. The nation was beginning to grow westward, and revivals were breaking out. It was called the Second Great Awakening. And there were these men that were going out into the frontier preaching the gospel, but there was one man in particular that learned the tricks of the trade. His name was Finney, and this man, Finney, learned that he could manipulate crowds to get them to believe. He learned that he could actually guess how many decisions he was going to get at his revival. He could guarantee it because he learned the art of making the deal, closing the deal, selling it. He could sell a bill of goods. And so he came into upstate New York. Y'all are familiar with the state of New York. Upstate, kind of away from uh, New York City towards the Great Lakes. He was doing all of these grand revivals amongst many others. And this, there was this great sweep of the fire of revival breaking out in New York. But it was fake. It wasn't real because the spirit wasn't moving. He was just manipulating. These men were manipulating, so there was this moment of heat. Have you ever seen this? Uh, many of you have served in student ministry, and maybe you've experienced a student D now weekend or a student camp where it seems like all the students get lit on fire for Christ, and then it burns out within a week, and you're like, was that real? What happened? I don't know what to make of that. That's what happened in upstate New York in the 1820s. In fact, it got so bad that the whole... Uh, uh, upstate of New York, it's like they got inoculated to Christianity. 
they were like, you know what, take it or leave it. They actually nicknamed the whole region of upstate New York the Burned Over District because it was like the fires of revival had swept through and then burned everything down. Have you all ever seen a wildfire? Once the wildfire makes its way through ravaging a field, what it leaves behind is just a charred wasteland. And proverbially, that was what upstate New York was. There was all this dissension left. There were people that were priding themselves on being Presbyterians and priding themselves on being Baptists and priding themselves on being Pentecostal and priding themselves on their particular revivalists that they followed. And there was all this debate. There was one particular family that lived in this region of upstate New York the Smith family. And this Smith family had moved to a little town outside of Rochester, New York, entitled Palmyra, New York. They had 12 children, and their fourth child, third son, was a young man named Joseph Smith, Jr. He was an uh, independent-minded child. This child saw all of the denominational strife, all of the cultural Christianity, all of the confusion within the burned over district of New York, and he began to question what his mom and dad believed and thought, this isn't for me, this can't be true. Incidentally, he was also a treasure hunter. Y'all ever seen National Treasure, that movie, where they go find all these crazy wild treasures? It was like he was living National Treasure all those years ago. This was 18, early 1800s. Well, oddly, he attests that in the year 1820, he was 14 years of age. Joseph Smith claims to have received a vision from God. And in this first vision, he attests that God told him. In fact, he believes it was God and Christ, the Father and the Son together, came and told him that all the religions, all the denominations of the Christian church were wrong. And so it disturbed him. It settled into his soul. And three years later, he attests in 1823, on a particular date, that he had a second vision. And in this second vision, he claims to have been confronted by an angel. But it wasn't Gabriel. It wasn't Michael the archangel. It was this angel named Moroni. M-O-R-O-N-I. How many of you, by show of hands, have ever seen a Mormon temple? Anybody ever seen it? They're typically a big white building. And what is always at the top of a Mormon temple? There's always this gold angelic statue. That angelic statue atop all Mormon temples is this angel, Moroni, M-O-R-O-N-I. Moroni came to Joseph and said, all the religions are wrong. If you want to know what's the true religion the right religion, if you want to get back to the real Christianity, here's what you need to do, Joseph. You need to go to this particular mountain outside of town. It was called the Hill of Kumora, C-U-M-O-R-A-H, the Hill of Kumora. You can go there to this day. And buried in this hill, now listen, this is kind of appealing to his national treasure instincts. Buried in this hill is a stone box filled with some golden tablets. Man, it sounds straight out of a movie script, does it not? And if you find these golden tablets, you will find buried with these tablets two seer stones, S-E-E-R, seer stones, stones that are going to help you interpret the weird hieroglyphics. In fact, 
Joseph attests that the writing on these golden tablets was what he called reformed Egyptian, whatever that even means, <laughs> reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. And these stones are going to help you interpret it. I mean, it I feels like Nicolas Cage is about to come into the scene. And so he claims to have found these stones, uh, these golden tablets hidden in the mountaintop. And over a period of four years, he finally ends up translating them, so to speak. And what he translates is a story that'll shock you. This story, which by the way, I'm just going to give you the cliffhanger. The story that he translates from these golden tablets, you can buy at a bookstore today. Do you want to know what it's called? The Book of Mormon. You ever heard of the Book of Mormon? It's their most famed piece of literature. The Book of Mormon is a translation in English of what these so-called golden tablets said. Now, let me tell you the story of these golden tablets because it'll amaze you. The story of these golden tablets, the Book of Mormon, is a story about the people of God. What do we call the people of God in the Bible? Israel. He actually believes this is a story about the people of Israel that were originally living in the Promised Land a year, around the year 600 B.C. Now, if you remember in Bible history, in 600 B.C., God was judging the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, and he was sending the Assyrians to wipe out the north. And who is he sending to wipe out the south? The Babylonians. The Babylonians were about to, in fact, in the year 605, this is true history, I teach this all the time in, in our Bible classes, in 605 B.C., the Babylonians came and started to destroy the southern kingdom, and in 586, they finally destroyed the uh, city of Jerusalem, and that's when all the people of God went off into exile. But according to this little story on these golden tablets, there was one particular man, a prophet of that group named Lehi, L-E-H-I. He was a Jew that lived amongst the people of God around 600 B.C. And he took a group of God's people evidently away because he had a prophecy that they were about to be destroyed by Babylon. He took them away, and here's where it gets crazy. He took them on a boat, and guess where they went? to the great U.S. of A. They escaped to the true promised land, the Americas. And in the Americas, there they settled. And do you know who they eventually became? The true people of God, the Israelites that ended up being corrupted in the time of Jesus and beyond. The true people of God were the Native American Indians of the United States North American region. So the story goes that Lehi comes to the United States. They found their group out here. They end up warring with each other. I'm leaving out a lot of details for the sake of time, but basically they end up killing each other off. They die around 400 AD, but right before they died, a few hundred years before they died, they had a surprise visitor. They had been there for 600 years and then all of a sudden, somebody showed up teleporting style in the United States to come talk to them. Do you know who it was? It was the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus, they claim. They believe in Jesus. And they said Jesus came after resurrecting and ascending to the Father, and he came down to the United States, North America, and there he met these people of God, and he taught them true religion. 
He taught them the rites of baptism and all the sacraments and all the rules that they needed to know. And then he went up to the Father. Meanwhile, they ended up dying off and were gone and no more. And Christianity became corrupted. Catholicism, Protestantism, everything for the last 2,000 years was basically a lost, corrupt church, including the Bible. They say all of it was corrupt until at last God in his grace came and found one man, a man named Joseph Smith, in 1820, and decided to restore the church at last. And he was going to restore it through Joseph. So Joseph takes this book that he's written down, all of this story of God's people. By the way, some of you are wondering, hey, Kyler, where did the term Mormon come from? Well, guess who Moroni's dad was? Moroni the angel that gave him all of this message? Well, the message that Moroni gave was written by his daddy, a prophet that had lived in those days, and that prophet's name was Mormon. That's where the name Mormon comes from. The Book of Mormon is referenced to the prophet who wrote most of the history of that book. Now, some of you have thought, now, preacher, help me understand this. When I drive by a Mormon church, they typically don't identify themselves as Mormon churches, do they? What do they identify themselves as? Latter-day Saints. Where'd that come from? Well, everybody turn your brain on with me and just think. It actually makes a whole lot of sense. If it's their conviction that God's people, the former-day Saints, were lost, they died off, and the church has been corrupted, there have been no Saints of God for the last 2,000 years or so, until at last God in his grace spoke to Joseph and revived the church. And now at last there were Latter-day Saints on the earth. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a reference to a restored, a revived church. Now before I go any further, you need to know something. Have you ever noticed when a wildfire burns through a field, what's the first thing to come back? Typically it's like little weeds those like most vigorous plants that'll start sprouting back up. This is what began to happen in New York. Do you want to know what's wild? In upstate New York, when all of these crazy cultural Christianity fake revivals burned through, all these weeds of false cultic religions began to prop up. Mormonism was not the only one, and I'm going to tell you more about the others in the coming weeks, but it's really interesting that it was one of many that began to sprout. So now let's think through this newfound church. We've seen the soil. Now we've seen the roots of this faith. How does it begin to grow? Well, Joseph Smith, he now fancies himself the great prophet of God who is teaching a new religion to God's people, the true faith of Christianity. So he begins to tell everybody how to worship the one true God. He starts the Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but guess what starts happening? They don't like it. And do you know why they don't like it? Because Joseph started to do things that wigged everybody out. Before I tell you what, I'm going to tell you why. Joseph Smith wanted to revive Christianity. He wanted to revive the true faith. So he went back to the Old Testament and he borrowed some Old Testament practices. Now when you go back to the Old Testament, you see a few things. First off, you see worship in a temple. And he began to rebuild temples. 
What else do you see in the Old Testament? They have all these crazy sacrifices. How many of you have ever noticed how puzzling it is that it seems like even some of these people that you think love the Lord, they got a lot of wives. He noticed that God seemed, at least in his judgment, to be kosher with polygamy. So he and many of them began to practice polygamy. And that in particular wigged a lot of people out. As they, I mean, it, listen, if you think our times are messed up, this, imagine living in these towns where polygamy starts to just break out like wildfire. And they're all thinking, brother, this is, this is a little weird. Another thing he began to do. What is another feature of Old Testament uh, religious worship practices. Who ran everything? It was the priests. You may remember Melchizedek, that famous priest in Genesis and in Hebrews, or you may remember Moses' brother Aaron, the famed Aaronic priesthood. Well, guess what Joseph Smith claimed? He claimed that in a dream or in a vision, John the Baptist appeared to him and ordained him, anointed him with the Aaronic priesthood. And he said that he was a priest in the order of Aaron, then he had another vision because that wasn't good enough. He said that Peter, James, and John appeared to him and gave him the priesthood of Melchizedek. So now, I mean, my word, that's about as good as it gets. He is the priest of all priests. He's like his own great high priest. And so he's got this priesthood. He's got the temples. He's got polygamy going on, and they don't like it. And so he and his followers have to flee, and they start heading west. First, they make their way all the way down to a town called Kirtland, Ohio, which to this day, if you go to the little town of K-R-R-T-L-A-N-D, Kirtland, Ohio, it's a famous Mormon community. Then he got driven out of Kirtland, and he made his way all the way to a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri, a town that my mother was born in and a town that I lived in uh, several years ago in the early 1990s, Independence, Missouri. Uh, incidentally, President Harry S. Truman was from Independence, Missouri. Independence, guess why they stopped there? I really don't know why he believed this, but Joseph Smith taught that Independence, Missouri was where the Garden of Eden originally was, which if you've ever been to Independence, Missouri, <laughs> that's an anticlimactic letdown. Whew. It's a great, it's a nice town, but it's, it ain't the Garden of Eden. Well, they, didn't, they weren't liked too much there because, again, these are crazy polygamists practicing weird stuff, so they get driven out of independence. They go up a little north to this little town called Far West Missouri, which was like maybe an hour northeast of Kansas City. And then eventually they had to get out of Dodge, and they made their way back to the Mississippi River. They backtrack over to the Mississippi, and they're about three hours north of St. Louis, Missouri. If you just traced up the Mississippi River from St. Louis, there was this little town right at the corner of Illinois, Missouri, and Iowa, this little town called Nauvoo, N-A-U-V-O-O, -O, right on the border. It's in Illinois. And there they settled yet again. And they begin to print stuff. They begin to really advocate for their new faith. But there's a group in town that didn't like them and started to print a newspaper called the Nauvoo Expositor that was basically saying, these people are crackpots. Well, Joseph Smith got mad, and he burned their whole plant down. He, got, he kind of retaliated. Well, he ends up getting arrested for this and imprisoned in this little town in Nauvoo. And one night, a mob came and killed him and his brother Hiram, and they both died, becoming martyrs for the Mormon cause. Now, now what? Is Mormonism going to die out with Joseph? 
Mormonism got picked up by a name I think you might be more familiar with than Joseph Smith. Any of you all ever heard of the name Brigham Young? You're familiar with that because of the university, I trust, Brigham Young University. It's named after the second co-founder of sorts of Mormonism, Brigham Young. He was basically Joseph Smith's right hand, and Brigham Young took up the mantle of leadership and decided, we got to get out of Nauvoo. Where are we going to go? Well, they decided we are going to go on a dangerous, arduous journey and go find a place where we can worship in peace. And so they begin their Oregon Trail journey. It's a long 1,700-mile journey. It's dangerous. They lost a lot of folks. And they finally, they didn't know where they were going, by the way. They didn't have a destination in mind. They were just heading west until one day they came upon a landscape that we know today as Salt Lake City, Utah. And Brigham Young, it is attested, saw the vista and said, this is it. This is where we will begin our community of God's people. And so in Salt Lake City, they established the headquarters of the Mormon church, which, as you well know, persists to this very day. That fills out our tree, began in the soils of this crazy revivalism that caused everybody to question Christianity. It sprouted with these weird visions of Joseph Smith, and then the shoots of it, these branches that started to come off, were all the crazy journeys they took everywhere as they began to formulate their faith. And the fruit that we all know today, when you think of Mormonism, what do you think of? You think of the Mormonism as typified in Salt Lake City, Utah, where you see that great temple and you see all the people that run it. By the way, I told you they were trying to borrow from the Bible. Guess who are the major leaders of the Mormon church? They picked a number, and it's a number that you were like, I know that number. They decided we need 12 men to lead our church, borrowing from the 12 disciples. They call them the Quorum of the Twelve, or these 12 apostles of the Mormon church that lead the Mormon church to this very day. This is the grand narrative of Mormonism. It's a faith that's built on the belief that the Christianity that we know is a corrupt faith, that the Bible we hold in our hands is an unreliable Bible. It is filled with wrong teachings that Joseph Smith was given the true, restored, primitive faith finally after so many years of it being lost. And so let's discuss now, because I haven't really told you what it is. What is this so-called primitive faith of which I speak? What, what exactly do they read and teach. What is this? Well, let's look at some of their sources first. The, first off, as we've already mentioned, they, they believe in what's called the Book of Mormon. There's a subtitle. By the way, if you ever want to know a book's argument, don't read the title. Do you want to know what's the most helpful part of a book to know what it's talking about? Read the subtitle. Subtitles are always more uh, informative. They're just usually longer, and the publisher doesn't want that as the title. They want a shorter, pithy title. And the subtitle tells you a lot. Do you want to know what the subtitle of the Book of Mormon is? You'll go find it on Amazon. Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Hmm. The Book of Mormon was that book, evidently, arguably, written by this prophet of old that was written on Egyptian, in Egyptian hieroglyphs on these gold tablets that Joseph Smith found, interpreted through these seer stones, published, and they have to this day. Now, Joseph Smith also, in his journeys, wrote down a lot of other stuff. 
One of these books is called Doctrine and Covenants. And in this book is basically just a bunch of little things that Joseph Smith thought about and rules. Basically, he gave rules on how, what you're supposed to eat and not eat, drink and what not drink, and a bunch of other stuff, do- doctrinal teachings. There was another book that's honestly kind of all over the map called The Pearl of Great Price, and that's based off Jesus' parable of the pearl. And he is basically having all these random revelations and thoughts from God that he has recorded in there. But then there's a fourth book, and it's the Bible. But it's not any old Bible. The Mormons believe in the King James Version of the Bible. If the king ain't on it, the king ain't in it. But it's no mere King James. That was for you, Danny. There's no mere King James Version because he believed that though it's the best of the English, it's still utterly corrupted. And so he annotated it. He added all these footnotes on what is right and wrong and what needs to be added. For example, he adds at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 50, which ends with the story of Joseph, he adds in a line about God sending a prophet whose name would be Joseph. It's his own little version of the King James Version of the Bible. These are the sources of authority. Now, interestingly, most Mormons would say the Book of Mormon is the most faithful, true, perfect piece of human literature. It's the truest revelation of God. The Bible was as true in its original manuscripts, but they've been hopelessly corrupted. So you can't really know it unless you translated it accurately. So the Book of Mormon is the most faithful thing, and the Bible is, dare we say, supplemental to this faith. Now, some of you are thinking, all right, Kyler, this is wacky. That story is a little odd. And by the way, there's a lot of stuff connected to Mormonism that has been repudiated to this day. But for example, there, well, I'll get to that in a moment. I'm going to save that, but it is admittedly shocking. Let's think through some of the key teachings of Mormonism. What, does all, what do all these books teach? Well, let's kind of approach it the way we would approach what the Bible teaches. Let's think through some of the key doctrines. So if they claim to be Christian, what do they believe about the Godhead? Because, you know, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as a core doctrine of the faith that we believe in the Trinity. Mormonism does not believe in the Trinity as Orthodox Christians do. Mormonism officially would look at the triune God as not one God eternally existent in three persons. They would view it as three separate gods. There is a Father, there is a Son, and there is a Spirit. They are three gods. So let's pick those three apart for a second. What do they believe about these gods? Let's talk about the Father. Here's where it gets really weird. They believe the Father who goes by the name Elohim, which is one of the Hebrew words for God in the Old Testament, they believe Elohim and Jehovah are two different gods, which, by the way, if you go read like Genesis, both names are used for God. Um, They would say they're two different ones. Elohim is God the Father, and God the Father is a human. He's a person. He's He's in flesh and bones. He was a spirit child of another God many years ago who was born through a human mother and father, lived as a human, lived really good, and ended up advancing into godhood. And his reward is that he lives in heaven with a bunch of wives, polygamy, and he has basically been having one big party conceiving billions of children since that day. And that every human that exists, billions throughout the ages, is a spirit child of Elohim conceived of Elohim with all of his heavenly wives. All these spirit children, they are enabled 
to become humans. They are born into human parents. And these children, when they become humans, you and I, these humans, they have the ability to basically do what Elohim did, to earn their way into becoming a god themselves. It's this weird little circle of life thing. The God begots a God. Now, let's, before we go any further, let's talk about who was the first child that Elohim had. Because he's had billions, which if this were true, that'd make me like, you know, one billion, one million and five or whatever. Who was number one? Who was the firstborn of all creation, as the Bible says? The firstborn child of Elohim was Jesus in their thought. That's why Jesus stands out. Jesus was his first spirit child, that, and they believed that Elohim physically came to earth and physically had sexual relations with the Virgin Mary, which most of us would say, well, then she's no longer a virgin. And they'll say, no, because if it's a god, it doesn't count. But they believe it was a physical encounter and that she conceived Jesus, and Jesus, who has existed as a spirit being, became incarnate as Jesus, whom we know in his earthly flesh. Guess who his secondborn spirit child was? Lucifer, Satan. Satan and Jesus are brothers, and they've been warring. They've been at it, because as the story goes, and some will say that this is ridiculous, but most would attest that in essence, the belief behind Mormonism is that Jesus and Lucifer basically kind of got into this little battle over what was going to happen to earth. The council that voted voted on Jesus, and Jesus got to be the savior of the world, and Lucifer's been mad about it ever since and has been wreaking havoc, kind of an odd little tale. Jesus comes to earth, and he is the one who enables all the other people to be saved. And you're thinking, from what? Now it gets even weirder. Let's talk about what does this religion teach about us, humans? So we're spirit children, and we spirit children, we are born by a human mother and father, and we have a life to where if we live our life well, if we obey, if we are good Mormons, so to speak, we can earn our way into godhood and become a god just like Elohim. So you're thinking, what's the point of a savior? Do we need a savior? Well, here's where it gets really odd. And it makes you wonder why they think so highly of Jesus. What they actually teach is that Jesus doesn't save you from your sins. They actually teach you that Jesus enables you to become a God. And here's how he did it. When Adam and Eve sinned all those many years ago, Eve took the fruit first. And Adam had a problem on his hands. He could either stick with his wife or disobey God. But it felt bad to do either. If he neglected his wife and let her go, he didn't know what to do. So he decided to just do what his wife did. And the writers of Mormonism say that Adam actually chose rightly. That it was a blessing in disguise that he did that. Because though it was technically disobeying God, what he did in that moment was he brought mortality to mankind. Adam and Eve were eternal spirit beings, but when they ate of the fruit, they became mortal humans. Death entered the world, which you're thinking, why is that a good thing? Sounds like a bad thing, and here's why it's good. In their logic, it enabled them to start having kids, which means every time a child is born into the world, guess what that is? 
That's you allowing a spirit child to escape the spirit world, come into human flesh, and finally have a chance to work themselves, earn themselves into godhood. So it took Adam and Eve sinning for spirit children to at last have a chance of becoming a god. Isn't that pretty wild? They wanted that chance to become gods. So really, when Jesus is our Savior, Jesus is the one who basically resurrected from the dead and enables all of us. Jesus saving us is basically this. Jesus enabling us to live a life and resurrect into a god. That's what he did. So here's what it actually means. You don't get saved by just professing faith. You don't get saved by a decision. Everybody is. It's a universal view. Every child is saved by Jesus. Every child is enabled to be resurrected. But it depends on how you live your life that's going to determine where you go. All of you are going to be resurrected somewhere. They have three levels of heaven and then a fourth one that you would call hell. They call these three levels of heaven the three kingdoms. And there's the celestial kingdom. That's the highest one. The celestial kingdom is for the best of the best. It's for those Mormons that were good Mormons. These were the ones that pretty much did everything right. They're the ones that went to all the temple stuff. They're the ones that got married in a temple. By the way, they believe in Mormonism that if you get married in one of their few temples, you have an eternal marriage and you get to basically be gods and goddesses together and go procreate throughout all eternity and make lots of other spirit children. So it's a big deal to get married in one of those. They teach that if you're a good Mormon, you get to go to this highest level of heaven. What's interesting is they'll even let another group in. Guess who else gets to go to the celestial heaven? It's the good people who were never aware of Mormonism. They never had access. They weren't aware of all the teachings, but they just lived really good lives. They get in too. Now, who gets into the second level of heaven, which they call the terrestrial glory? This is for those unworthy scallywags, those Mormons that were no good. They really weren't living a good life, but they were still Mormons. They get in there. Or it's the good people who knew about Mormonism but rejected it. So they're good like the other, but they actually knew about Mormonism and still said no. They get into the second level of heaven called the terrestrial glory of the terrestrial kingdom. Now there's a third level. And this third level of heaven is called, very similarly, the telestial glory. Very similar to terrestrial. And this is for the wicked people. This could be described as the outer darkness that Jesus describes in the Gospels. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar to purgatory. It's kind of like hell on a limited temporary basis. This is where wicked people go and can kind of burn off some of their stuff. True hell, eternal damnation, is what they call the lake of fire, which is reserved for basically the devil, demons, and those who commit the unpardonable sin, those who... I don't really know how they would conceive of it. We would say the unpardonable sin is unrepentant rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not exactly sure how they would conceive it, but those are those who would end up in what they describe as hell. Now, lastly, their view of the church, 
is, as you might expect, it's basically this view that they are the renewed, restored, true church. This is what Jesus came for. This is what true faith is. They believe that they are this true restoration. So this concludes now with our final point. And I don't feel like I need to belabor this. Folks, do you now conceive of Mormonism as cultic? Reminding ourselves that the definition of a cult is one that presents themselves as Christian. But what? They deny core doctrines. Do they? Brother and sister, where do you start? This isn't like a little difference here. This is what's so tough. So, you know, listen. During the political cycles of 10 years ago, there was a lot of angst amongst the evangelical community on what to do with Mormonism because so many evangelicals were inclined to vote for one. Which, by the way, I think you can. And we live in a very dark age. We often have to choose between the lesser of two, uh, two evils. I get that. So I'm not saying you can't vote for an individual because of this. But there was a great effort to try to whitewash Mormonism as basically just it's like Presbyterianism, Baptist, Mormonism. It's almost like a denomination of Christianity. And it's not, folks. You want to know what differentiates Presbyterians from Baptists? It's not the gospel. It's secondary issues like what is baptism actually, who's it for? What differentiates Baptists from Pentecostals? On the most part, it's not core doctrines, though there are some Pentecostal groups that deny the Trinity. But in general, it's like views of how the Spirit actually works. It's all these secondary debates that don't deny the true gospel. It's just other issues of the Bible that we're having trouble agreeing on. As you can tell, Mormonism actually attacks core, key Christian doctrines, and you must conclude that the God they present is not the God of Christianity. They deny who God really is. We believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existent as those three people in one Godhead. They deny this. We believe in God the Father who is eternally existent, never begotten. They believe God was begotten, that God actually was born many years ago. We don't believe that. They believe that Jesus the Son is some spirit child that came from Elohim actually physically engaging Mary and that he is the elder brother of Lucifer. We don't believe any of that. They believe that Jesus' atonement was just a universal get-out-of-hell-free card, which we do not believe the Bible teaches. They believe that Jesus' blood atonement was not what we conceive of as the blood atonement. They believe that Jesus, though he was a in a sense, God, they do not believe Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the God-man, the one to whom we will sing forevermore, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. They don't even believe the Spirit of God to be as we conceive of the Spirit of God. It was just the, this eternal force, so to speak, at work in the world. They do not believe in the gospel of Christianity. They, they, they actually deny the heart of the gospel. They, they believe that you are saved truly by a lot of good works. They think that the gospel of grace is basically just reserved for those people in hell. But the people that get to the best part of heaven, they don't need grace because they earned their way to it. They lived good Mormon lives to get there. They deny who God is. They clearly deny what God has said because they look at the Bible and say, nah, corrupted. Here's what God said. God said all these crazy tales from the Book of Mormon. Folks, they deny the heart of Christianity, which is God's revealed word to us. 
who he is, what he said, what, who we are. They, they deny who we actually are biblically as human beings. They claim us to be these spirit children that can become gods ourselves. They truly teach that if you live a really good Mormon life, you will become the god of your own planet or planets one day, and you will have an eternal ecstasy with your harem of women and basically spawn off all these other spirit children that can go and do all of that all over again. Folks, they deny biblically who we really are, and finally, they deny what we need. And what do we need, folks? Our great hope, our great plea, the message, sum and substance of our faith is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we desperately are without any hope if it weren't for Jesus Christ coming to do what we could never do. Living the life we could never live, dying the death that we deserve, mightily and triumphantly being raised from the dead to prove once and for all that we who were sinners have now been justified, wiped clean, saved by the blood of the Lamb. They, they deny this. And so I, I want to land the plane now by not sounding too bombastic. Mormons are some of the most wonderful citizens they are, as a gross generalization, kind, upstanding. I'm sure they make terrific neighbors. But Mormonism is more like Hinduism than Christianity. It's polytheistic. Do you, did you pick up on that? We are a monotheistic religion, one God. They're polytheistic. Not only do they believe the Trinity is three different gods, they believe all of us can be gods one day. So they believe in probably more gods than the Hindu gods. Hinduism teaches 300 plus million they teach billions, potentially, because it's all of us can become them. They are, in other words, this is a textbook definition of a cult. So remember, cult versus occult. Occult is kind of the pagan witchcraft, the spooky stuff that you wouldn't want your child around. Cult doesn't ever seem that scary. Cult, cultic leaders are persuasive for this reason. They're, they're very easily enticed because they tend to be wonderfully kind individuals and they're people that are typically sincere. But their faith is not the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so let me land our plan tonight by just giving you a, a pastoral word. If the Lord allows you to cross paths with Mormons, and I trust all of you have because what's, I don't even think I mentioned this at the beginning, what's one of the great visuals we have of Mormons? It's those two young men wearing their white collared shirt, riding their bicycle and their tie in the heat, and they come knocking on your door. Those Mormon missionaries, they are renowned for their missionary zeal. Mormons send out boys, typically boys, rarely girls. Typically, you'll see boys ages 18 to late 20s. Uh, it's estimated that of the active practicing Mormons, like those who truly go to Mormon church, upwards of 80 to 90% of their young men go on these missions. That's why you see so many of them everywhere. When these Mormon missionaries come to your door, God in his uh, grace allows you to have a relationship with a Mormon family, wh what do you do there? What you wouldn't do, at least I would pastorally commend you not to do this, is to go tell them how crazy that story is. It would be to ask them questions and to go to the heart of some of these key distinctions, to share with them why you believe we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that how could there ever be in any meaningful, realistic sense any true ability to earn your way to celestial glory? For in the final analysis, 
all my word, if you only knew the wicked darkness of my own heart, and God has been sanctifying it for the last 20 plus years, and I still feel as a wretched, filthy rag before the presence of His glory. If you can just show them your sin and what God has done for you, show them the powerful, transforming work of the Word. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't feel like you need to be an apologist for it, that you need to know the answer to every objection to it. Just trust in the power of the Word. Billy Graham often would attest as he preached that you want to know what moved his great crowds as he proclaimed God's Word to them. It wasn't his eloquence. It wasn't his anecdote. It was when he would say, the Bible says. And every time he said that, and he'd just rattle off a verse, he said those were the moments that he could sense the Spirit gripping people. And the more he said, the Bible says, there was more power because there is power in the word proclaimed. The word will not return void, so just unapologetically, unashamedly claim it, share it. Tell it, show them that they, they, most of them genuinely believe they are Christian, that they are just like them. John MacArthur, most of you are familiar with Johnny Mac. He uh, once remarked on a television program that uh, one of the professors of Brigham Young University, famed uh, Mormon uh, school, said, hey, we've been giving your book out to all of our students because we really want them to love Jesus more. John MacArthur's like, oh my word, I have failed. I wrote a book on Jesus and they think it's good. This, this should be challenging them. And so he talked with them, of course, and he tried to help them understand that, hey, the Jesus you're referring to is not the Jesus I'm referring to. That's no more the same than Oprah's version of Jesus. This is, this is another Jesus altogether. And so just remember as you engage Mormons, love them as you would an Islamic individual, as a Hindu individual, as a practicing Jew, Judaism, which is Christless, by the way, anybody else. But remember that though it may seem quite similar, it is an altogether other religion. Folks, when you come back next week, we're going to dive into the second one that you see all around communities. Any of you guys ever been in Uptown Charlotte and you see those awfully well-dressed, kind, respectable folks standing there with a little uh, stanchion filled with uh, literature? JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses. You ever had a Jehovah's Witness knock on your front door? Next week when you come, we're going to look at this second cult and figure out its story and what it believes and why it falls short of the gospel, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Why don't you join me as we pray and we'll call it a night. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters. I pray this wasn't too much, that it was useful, and I ask, Lord, that all that I said that was charitable would be remembered, and anything I said that was unfair would not be. Lord, we want to see Mormons' eyes be open to see you as you truly are, and I pray they would fall in love with you, Lord Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God and the Savior of the world. And so use us in spite of us as a means to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everybody. See you next week.